from the classroom to the emergency room, OR and beyond. You're joining Trauma ICU Rounds with your host, Dr. Dennis Kim. Welcome to Trauma ICU Rounds. I'm your host, Dennis Kim, and today is National Stop the Bleed Day. For those of you unfamiliar with the Stop the Bleed campaign, this is a collaborative initiative that is volunteer-led with a single goal in mind. And that is to save lives by training people across the country how to stop traumatic bleeding. This includes key skills such as, number one, applying direct pressure, two, packing wounds, and three, placing tourniquets to bleeding extremity wounds. Over the last few months, several of my colleagues from across the country and I, under the leadership of Dr. Ken Gianaba, Jim Dodd, Mark Gestring, and the Education Committee of the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma, have developed virtual or online materials that can be used to host a virtual Stop the Bleed course. More on that towards the end of today's rounds. So before we jump into today's episode, which I'm really pumped up about, and I know I say that a lot, but seriously, I'm, I'm really pumped up about today's episode. I have a couple of asks of you, our listeners. First, check out last year's episode dedicated to tourniquets and Stop the Bleed Day. That's season one, episode 11. It's a quick listen, about 18 minutes. And second, please visit the StopTheBleed.org website. If you haven't been trained, you can look for and register for courses in and or around your area. Finally, if you're an instructor, please check out the recently posted materials that can be used to host a Stop the Bleed class online or remotely. Now, for rounds. So, just this morning, I made my way across town up the 110 freeway from Harbor UCLA in South Los Angeles to LAC USC or Big County in Boyle Heights. I am very excited to be hosting our first in-person podcast episode interview since the pandemic started, and who better to have on the show than one Dr. Kenji Anaba? Dr. Anaba really needs no introduction, but he's going to get one anyways. Kenji, like yours truly, is a Canadian who obtained a master's in physiology at U of T, followed by medical school at Queen's University, and he underwent his general surgery residency training at the University of Western, followed by a trauma surgical critical care fellowship in Miami at the Ryder Trauma Center. Since 2005, Dr. Naba has been a practicing trauma and acute care surgeon at LAC USC Medical Center, where he's the chief of trauma and professor of surgery, emergency medicine, and anesthesiology, as well as clinical scholar at the Keck School of Medicine. Now, in academia, we oftentimes talk about the triple threat surgeon. That is someone who excels not just clinically, but academically in the areas of research as well as education. Needless to say, Kenji, well, let's just say not only meets, but smashes when it comes to academic excellence. He's the recipient of countless research grants, has been an invited speaker at hundreds of national and international grant rounds and conferences. He's the recipient of numerous teaching awards and has published more than 600 peer-reviewed articles with more than a couple of dozen awaiting publication, book chapters, co-editor of textbooks, mentor, an officer with the LAPD. I 
could go on and on, but seriously, let's get these rounds started. Kenji, it is so good to see you, dude. Dennis, thank you so much for uh, coming to visit us. It really is uh, great to see you. And thanks for coming all the way across the city. Yeah, yeah. Looking forward to having a little lunch from the uh, cafeteria here. It's much nicer (laughs) than ours down in South Torrance. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what is uh, new and exciting with you during these times? You know, it's been uh, very busy here in Los Angeles. I know I've spoken to all the surgeons at your institution as well, as well as the guys all across the city. It's been exceedingly busy this winter. You know, in all, all the years that I've been here, I think this is my 16th or 17th year here in LA, and uh, it was very busy. So um, yeah, it's kept us running, that's for sure. And in terms of the current COVID situation, do you find things are starting to settle down or level out? It really has. I think we're mirroring what's being seen across the entire county of Los Angeles, and things really have gotten quiet from that uh, standpoint. And, uh, you know, it's it's a welcome relief, and, and it really did complement the fact that our trauma volumes uh we're just so busy. So it, it really helps us a lot as we ease into the summer season. And as the trauma numbers uh, pick up even further, it's really nice that we don't have to contend with the uh, COVID issue uh, nearly in the same way that we did uh, at the tail end last year. Absolutely agree. And with summer upon us and restrictions slowly easing up here, just last week, we had a combined hurt drill. And for those of you out there who are unfamiliar with the LA County hurt team, that's our hospital emergency response team, which is a joint effort between our two hospitals, physicians and nurses from the ER and trauma pre-hospital providers, EMS, LA County sheriffs, among others. And together we congregate at an outdoors training facility just north of the city where we undergo a number of team training exercises through various simulated scenarios. For example, providing a definitive airway and safely removing a patient entrapped in a collapsed building or performing a field amputation. Yeah, you know, it was a really good exercise. And we try to do it once a year. And I think it's really important to make sure that all of our surgeons who operate 99.999% of the time (laughs) in the hospital, to get them used to working in the field with a completely different set of equipment, with different support personnel, you know, just, just to get your mind set in a different way it's it's absolutely critical in order to ensure the safety and the efficacy of this uh, program. We started off with, uh, on day one, a helicopter safety briefing and just like a transport uh, safety session, followed by a presentation on, on the way that our EMS system is set up and all the different personnel that you're going to encounter in the field when you're trying to perform an amputation or, or some other procedure in the field. And then on day two... We either flew or drove out to the training site, met up with you all, and uh, it was great because it's a nice chance for all of the surgeons, the emergency medicine um, physicians, for all of our trainees and our fellows, our residents, and all of the nursing staff to get together with all of the pre-hospital care providers to work on these problems. And um, they set up four very good problems that are extremely realistic. And, you know, it was right there with everything from amputating a leg to delivering a baby, all of those issues out in the field. And uh, it, it really was fantastic. And it really got us thinking. It made us look very closely at the gear that we carry, the meds, the equipment, 
what saw works well in a very confined space as opposed to in a wide open space. You know, what sort of safety protocols do we have to have in place to ensure that our providers don't get hurt and that we can safely extricate somebody? What sort of equipment does the EMS system have to help us with these extrications and these patient movements so that everybody stays safe? All of that came together with these uh, four problems, and and I thought it was just a great uh, day overall. So, uh, yeah, with the uh, end of that one, we'll start planning the uh, next one for a year's uh, time from now. And, and, you know, I think, Dennis, the reality is if you go through the history here in L.A. County, these teams are mobilized uh, fairly frequently. And so it is super important that everybody's up to speed. So I, I thought it was a great day, actually. The, the feedback was incredible. I saw a lot of the picks and we'll post those to the actual Web page. But I agree. This is a, a fantastic resource. Uh, for the citizens and folks in Los Angeles County, and heaven forbid that we need to activate. But if we do, we'll be well prepared. So just to switch gears, moving from the pre-hospital setting back to, let's say, the emergency room. About a month or two ago on Twitter, I posted a picture of a sub-xiphoid window. And this generated a lot of controversy when it came to management of patients with cardiac injuries. And so I wanted to make that the focus of our conversation or discussion today, Dr. Anaba. And so why don't we start, you know, one of the things that I classically was taught and still continue to teach is the importance of the cardiac box. And in recent years, things like the zones of the neck, especially when it comes to gunshot wounds, has kind of fallen by the wayside. Is the cardiac box in modern surgery still applicable? That's a great question. I think, you know... Here's how I would answer that question. I think if you just look at the cardiac box anatomically, it just makes sense that if there's an injury in that cardiac box, it ought to give you a mental heads up that there may be something underneath there. Now, when you look at it scientifically, though, the reality is that, yes, there is a slight significant increase in cardiac injuries if there is an injury to the box. But that really becomes kind of irrelevant when you take a look at how we work up these injuries in 2021. So, you know, we did a study recently um, looking specifically at the role of the cardiac box. And yeah, I think for stab wounds specifically, there's a significantly increased incidence of cardiac injuries. For gunshot wounds, it did not hold true. The reality is when we looked at this data and really sat down to put it into context and interpret what this really means, I think that there's a couple things that are really important. And that is that number one, it doesn't matter whether or not the injury is inside the cardiac box or it's outside the cardiac box. If you ask the question, does it have the potential to cause a clinically significant cardiac injury? The answer is yes. So regardless of whether the injury happens to be in the box or not, I think you still have to worry, is the heart injured or not? And then the second thing, um, which is probably the most important consideration when we um, discuss the utility or the role of the cardiac box, is the ultrasound. And the reality is, pretty much no matter where you work nowadays, you're going to have access to bedside ultrasound. And the reality is, because we have this ubiquitous access to ultrasound, and it can look for and tell us whether or not there's fluid in the pericardial sac, when you put together the fact that any injury inside or outside the box can cause a cardiac injury, and you have an ability to diagnose it, 
The reality is when that patient rolls in and they have a stab wound or a gunshot wound to the chest, it doesn't really matter if it's in the box or outside the box. You're going to do the ultrasound, assuming that they may have an injury, and you're going to treat according to that ultrasound. And so um, I think the short answer is no, it doesn't <laughs> matter. But I think, you know, all of us, if you've been doing this for a while, as soon as they come in, if especially if you see a stab wound and it's right there in the box, you'll probably have a slightly higher mental awareness that there may be something underneath that. But the reality is we treat them all the same, whether it's way out lateral or it's right in the middle of the box. Yeah, ABCs. And again, these patients, when they do have a clinically significant cardiac injury, just have this common appearance. They're, they're seated up, they're wide-eyed, they don't want to be laid down, and they just have this classic presentation. But maybe let's just back up for our learners or the students out there. We're talking about the box. They might be wondering, what on earth are they talking about? So what are the boundaries of the box? And does this also apply to injuries to the back? Yeah, that, oh, that's, that's a great question. So first of all, the box, as we traditionally look at it, would be on the anterior surface of the body, and it would be bordered in general by the nipples, um, out to the side laterally, your thoracic inlet or this uh, sternal notch, and then it would follow the costal margin down. And that would give you the anterior box. Now, from the posterior aspect, because of the bony rib cage as well as the muscle that's um, sitting there, it really is not part of that box that we would think of. So, you know, there's just too many intervening um, structures on the way to the heart. So, so classically, it would be an anterior surface landmarking um, with the borders that we just described. So you mentioned ultrasound and fast, and I agree, this is really the gold standard for ruling in or out the presence of a cardiac injury following penetrating trauma. In fact, the probe is usually on the patient's torso even before we can begin assessing the airway or get the pre-hospital report. Several years back, one of our fellow Canadians, Dr. Chad Ball, wrote on the limitations or pitfalls for FAST, and recently your group performed a study looking at the utility of FAST in predicting survival following resuscitative thoracotomy. And if I recall correctly, in about 4 to 5% of patients, the FAST was inadequate. And I got to say, I feel like that number is kind of low. So what are some of the limitations of FAST, and what are some of the things we should be thinking of doing to circumvent those issues? Yeah, those are those are great questions. So I think there's three sort of issues that you brought up. The first is that there are going to be limitations, and um, these range from body habitus to the um, presence of subcutaneous emphysema or gas from air um, that uh, obstructs your view. There are a whole host of user and patient-dependent factors that can obstruct your view. I think that uh, it's important, as everybody knows, to attempt multiple views, whether it's subxiphoid or direct transthoracic views. There are different ways that you can try to get around that. But you're right. There are some physical limitations to getting a good view. So that that is the first point. I agree 100% with that. Number two, the issue with the falsely negative fast, I, I agree. You know, Chad published that uh, paper. I know exactly the one that you're talking about. I cite it all the time when we're teaching. <laughs> and we practically see it. It wasn't that long ago, a uh, couple months ago on call, that we had a patient just like that. They come in. There's a classic stab wound that looks like it's in a worrisome spot in the, you know, cardiac box area or somewhere to the chest. 
And you do the ultrasound right up front, which we can talk about in a second, and it's negative. And so you um, get everything else on, you get all the monitors on, you're doing your full physical exam, you take another look, and it's negative. You shoot a chest x-ray, the two cardinal imaging modalities that we're going to use to sort out what's happening in the chest, being the ultrasound and the chest x-ray. You get that chest x-ray, and there's usually it's on the left side, a left hemothorax. So perfect. Um, you check your ultrasound a third time. It's still negative. You put that chest tube in and boom, some blood comes out. Now, that blood is not enough for you to warrant going to thoracotomy, but you're watching that chest tube and you're getting everything else worked up. There's no other injuries. It's a single stab wound that looks kind of worrisome, but you're fast. Three times now has been negative, but your chest tube continues to dribble blood out. I think in a patient like that, which is who you're describing, and and that's the paper that Chad wrote, you really need to be wary that that stab wound has gone through the thoracic uh, cavity, it's gone through the pericardium and opened up a pretty big hole in the pericardium, and then the tip of that knife has gone in and caused a clinically significant cardiac injury. Now, every time that heart expels some blood, it goes into the pericardial space, and normally it would be trapped there, but especially those injuries that are a little bit more dependent, that force of the heart pounding is going to just push it out through this large pericardial gap. And you get this falsely negative pericardial fast with this dribbling of blood out of the chest tube. And I think we all need to be very cognizant that you've got a missed cardiac injury with a, with a falsely negative fast. So I think you and I have seen it multiple times. There's a nice uh, manuscript that Chad did that outlines that. And it's a, it's a great pitfall that we need to worry about. And then I, I think the third question was about the uh, resuscitated thoracotomy. And so, yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that's a really good question. So it's a whole different type of patient that we're talking about. And I know we could go on for the entire segment on just resuscitated thoracotomy. But the reality is when a patient comes in in cardiac arrest and we have to make a decision, are we going to do anything at all? I think the first point I would make is that if you're ever going to do a resuscitative thoracotomy, the penetrating chest wound, especially if it's a stab wound, that is your highest yield patient and uh, probably the best type of patient that is arresting uh, that you should do a resuscitative thoracotomy on. Especially with a stab wound, the outcomes can be really good. So the save rate or the recovery rate is, is excellent. Now, if you work in a smaller place where you're not sure if you should be doing that thoracotomy or not, if you ask the question, can ultrasound help us make that decision? I think the answer is yes, I think it can. Patient comes in and they're in cardiac arrest. And you're sitting there in the resuscitation bay and they roll in, you transfer them to the um, bed and you start your workup. If you were to apply an ultrasound probe to the heart and ask the question, is there any cardiac motion? And secondly, is there any fluid around the heart? If the answer to both of those questions is no, there's no cardiac motion and there's no fluid around the heart, the reality is the save rate or the likelihood that you're going to actually have a survivor or a patient that goes on to donate organs, which I think are the two most important outcomes, the answer is going to be no. It is exceedingly unlikely. As you know, we did a study um, a couple of years ago now um, looking specifically at that question, and uh, really no motion, no fluid equals very much no survivor. So that's kind of how I would answer that question. 
Yeah, yeah. And in that study, the sensitivity for that was 100% with the specificity of almost 80%. So very good points. And yeah, we're totally talking about a couple of different types of patients. So we have the patients that are coming in stable, you suspect a cardiac injury, you do the workup. And then we have patients who are coming in in extremis. And, and I think some of the points that you made about the, the better outcomes in patients with stab wounds is really important. And it always reminds me of a 2000 paper by Peter Ree in which they kind of break down survivability into a couple of key categories. Number one, what's the mechanism, blunt versus penetrating? And if it's penetrating, stab wound versus gunshot wound. What's the location of injury? We know that patients with primarily thoracic injuries will have better outcomes than abdominal or multi-cavitary wounds. And then are there signs of life present on presentation? And people, I think, do still confuse vital signs and signs of life. Signs of life, we're typically talking about pupillary reactivity, agonal respirations, or any form of cardiac activity. And like you so eloquently put it, these days, I think we're really looking towards fast to make that determination. Is there motion or not? Is there fluid in the sac or not? Now, let's take the patient who is not crashing. They're not an extremis or moribund requiring a resuscitative thoracotomy. They've got a stab wound to the box. You do your fast and it's indeterminate. Because honestly, I find that there's usually more indeterminance than either positive or negative. It's like we don't want to commit. So it's kind of indeterminate. But they're lying there and they're comfortable and they're not dying and they're talking to you. What do we do in those instances? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. So patient rolls in and you're right. If we can get a very clear cut positive, this is a patient that's going to go to the operating room, no question. And and you want to get there as soon as possible before they arrest. So everyone agrees with that. And if it's clearly negative, the likelihood, again, as long as that chest x-ray is negative and we're not missing that falsely negative patient, the reality is the sensitivity is pretty good for clinically significant cardiac injuries. So with that one caveat that we talked about, for, for everyone else that comes in and you're like, ah, it's kind of an indeterminate study. I agree. So this is what we do here at uh, LA County. So it's not uncommon for us to have this finding. We'll repeat it. So we'll get everything kind of all set. We'll make sure that there's no other injuries that we're missing. We'll shoot the chest x-ray and then we'll repeat it and try to get ourselves compartmentalized into a positive or a negative finding. But if it's still indeterminate, we will then move to still a bedside without having to move the patient transthoracic echo done using a formal echo done by cardiology to get yet another set of eyes in. We have access to it 24-7. They're really good and super helpful. And it brings in another pair of eyes. It brings in a different machine. It brings in a whole new set of um, of folks to, to take a look at it. And, and I find that in my experience, that second set of eyes really helps to categorize into a positive or negative finding. Now, if they're still indeterminate and that patient is, in fact, um, perfectly stable and is sitting tight, I would then, as you know, the setup here is really nice. We have a CAT scanner right next door, and I know that people are going to cringe when they hear this, but what I would do and what my partners would do is we would move over to the CAT scanner. Again, you've got to see the patient. You've got to be comfortable with the patient. You've got to stay with the patient, but now you have this equivocal bedside ultrasound that you've done, and then you've got this second um, cardiology-run ultrasound, which is equivocal. You then, we will go to the uh, CT scanner, which is right next door, and we will quickly scan through 
And with all of that, we can usually make up our minds as to what we're going to do. However, I know you're pushing me towards the next step, um, which is going to be, so the CAT scan, you look at it, and yeah, there's a little bit of soft tissue kind of artifact going down right towards the heart, and it's not super clean, and they won't rule on it. Well, if we're truly equivocal at this point, so now you've got three imaging modalities that are equivocal, I will then take the patient, and we do this several times a year, to the operating room, and we will do a subxiphoid pericardial window. So it's not often that we do this, um, and uh, and yet it is something that we do do. So, And I think it should be something that you know how to do, because you've got to do it properly in order to truly be able to use this as a diagnostic test. And so um, so that would be the answer to your question. We would move to the operating room for a pericardial window. Um, and, and I think that in the operating room, the key to doing a good pericardial window is to set everything up. So this is um, something that you want some help. You want to have an excellent view, not just an adequate view. You want to have everything perfectly open up and ready to go. Because again, this is a patient that should be able to tolerate that. If they're acting at all like they truly have a cardiac injury, this is not what you want to be doing. So you've got some time in this sort of patient. You're going to get all your retractors in. You're going to haul up on that sternum so that you have that perfect view. You want to make sure that your incision is sufficient so that you can really see it. You want to clean that pericardium off so that it's all set to go. You want to grab it with some alices so that there's no blood dripping down that you're going to mistake as to if it's positive or negative. And when everything's set, then while everyone's watching, you're all ready to go. You make a snip and then you can make a determination. Is there a bloody fluid in there or is it nice, clear pericardial fluid that you're looking at? And I think that is the key. That is the situation that you would do it in. And um, that is the way that you would do it to make sure that you get a binary yes or no answer. Because if it's yes, then you're going to continue that on. You're going to do that sternotomy. So great points. And I think the whole idea of being prepared and setting up your exposure is critical. You need to be ready to do a meeting sternotomy in the case that your patient does crump upon induction, which again would be more of an indicator that there is some underlying tamponade physiology. So we've done several of these over the last couple of years, and I also agree with chest CT in patients who remain hemodynamically stable. And, and you're right, people do cringe. Uh, one of my partners, uh, Dave Plurad, who trained here at LAC USC, we put out a paper a couple years ago on the utility of chest CT for penetrating cardiac injuries. It finally got picked up in some obscure journal after being rejected from JT and the usual players. But I do think it can be helpful. Now, when it comes to that window, I agree. We got to set it up. We do all that. You make your incision. And there's like some pinkish tinged fluid that comes out. It's not frank blood. There's no big clots. But there's blood tinged fluid coming out. So what do we do at that yeah. point? That That's a really good question. And I don't know if you're pushing me to drain it. But let, let me, I'm going to give you my answer. And then we can, if that's, <laughs> if that's why you're laughing right now, no, then no, we can no discuss it. So, <laughs> so I will tell you that we are suspicious enough with the tract and with the three imaging um, tests that we've done to this point, that we're actually in the operating room and the patient's under general anesthetic. If there is any blood at all in that, if there's any tinging, if, you know, because we've set it up. So this is a clear cut, perfect cut, and it's not perfectly clear fluid that comes out. 
in my practice, and I think I'm speaking from my partners as well here, um, we would then carry on. That would be the trigger to do the median sternotomy. But I know that uh, recently, actually at one of our recent meetings here in Southern California, I think there was a resident presenting on a series of patients uh, from Las Vegas, if I'm not mistaken, looking specifically at this sort of patient and, you know, whether or not you can just drain, like irrigate it out. And if that irrigation becomes and remains clear, just leave it a drain in place. And so here's how I would answer that. So I think number one, the whole um, concept of a, whether it's a percutaneously placed or intraoperatively placed drain for the pericardium can be used as a temporizing measure. And there have been several series. I think the, one of the more recent ones is from Denver looking specifically at as a temporizing measure to bridge them if immediate sternotomy is not available to the point where they can have that chest opened and that injury um, dealt with properly. I think that, you know, it is a tool. It wouldn't be in use here at LA County because we have immediate access to immediate sternotomy. But in some places, that may be something that can temporarily bridge someone to definitive surgical care. So I, I would agree with that. With the patient, though, that we're talking about, I think that there simply isn't enough data to support doing that universally. Now, I know that you and I and many of the people listening have opened the chest, done that sternotomy, and there's a hole there for sure. There's like this tiny little stab wound usually. Pericardium. Yeah, and it's yeah, and it's there. And either the pericardium was stabbed and there's no like you look at the heart and you look at it again, you look at the backside, you look at the sides, there's nothing. <laughs> or you do see a cut partially through the cardiac muscle. And it's either not full thickness or it's so small that it's sealed off. And, and because most knives have a tip and it starts to broaden out, maybe the very tip of the knife entered into the heart, but the, and you know, the myocardium is actually cut, but there's no leak of blood from the inside of the heart to the outside. We've all seen that. And, you know, maybe you put a stitch in it because you're already there, but the, and to prevent a pseudoaneurysm later on. But the reality is, really, could you have left that alone? The answer is yes, you probably could have done that. So we know that there are cases like that that will bleed a little bit um, or the hole in the pericardium lets fluid in from the outside in and you register that as a positive fast. But I would say that despite all of that, the incidence of that is relatively low and the evidence to support some sort of drainage maneuver, irrigation and drainage, is not robust enough to make that a universal practice. So we do not do that here. But, you know, we have an open mind. We're, as you know, super aggressive here at LA County about pushing the envelope. And so it's definitely something that we talk about and we're always open to the idea, but I think it has to be done in a very um, clear-cut, safe, conservative way. And it's got to be studied so that we really know what we're doing. So so that that's kind of how I would a- answer that tech question. I know it's super controversial and I know, I mean, it came up, you know, recently here in uh, LA, but uh, um, that's that's what I would answer. We are not doing it, but I certainly am open to the possibility of it. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's a rare enough injury that maybe in a multi-institutional fashion, the answer may be found. Certainly, there have been single institutional so-called randomized controlled trials out of South Africa that have looked at this and shown that it actually may be a safe practice. But I agree, our practice as well would be to do a, a median sternotomy. And I've had my fair share of patients that had a partial injury. Uh, we'll still have the, the residents so on it because uh, we're already there. And again, like you mentioned, the risk for a pseudo A is always there. And then enclose the patient. And fortunately, these incisions are actually well tolerated. And many of these patients are young, healthy, and amazingly leave the hospital within about three or four days. Now, I do want to emphasize one of the points that you made, which I thought was great, and that's the role of pericardial drains or pericardial window with drain placement in patients who are maybe unstable or manifesting tamponade physiology, specifically if you are without surgical capability or in a remote hospital setting, and there certainly have been studies to support that practice. And again, we do want to distinguish these patients who are symptomatic, hemodynamically unstable, versus the patient that we were talking about who's kind of got this equivocal findings on FAST, equivocal findings on CT, and remains hemodynamically stable. One of the modalities that I haven't seen a lot written about is the utility of diagnostic thoracoscopy. Is that something that you've ever considered, or do you think that there would be a role in patients who have that equivocal FAST, the equivocal CT stable, to just stick a camera in there and take a look from the left side at the pericardium and the heart? That's a great question. And again, for investigational use, I'd say absolutely. We don't do that as a matter of practice right now, but it's certainly something that, uh, yeah, ought to be studied 100%. So we have a number of different courses through the American College of Surgeons, including ASSET as well as ADAM. And as we go through a course like ADAM, we're taught a number of different ways and tips and tricks to manage cardiac wounds. So let's shift gears. Instead of a simple laceration to the RV, which is the most commonly injured chamber of the heart, let's take the example of someone who's got a gunshot wound to the left ventricle, so a, a larger wound. This patient arrests in the ER. You perform a resuscitative thoracotomy, and you've got your thumb on this hole. You're in the OR now. What are some options and some considerations intraoperatively in terms of approaching these sorts of injuries? Yeah, that's a really good question. And uh, I think I would say a couple things. So first of all, even in a place like this or your institution, even at these busy trauma centers, the reality is it's relatively rare to see a patient that has a gunshot wound that has survived to the point where they're alive and in the operating room and you're about to launch into fixing it. So the reality is the vast majority of the injuries that we fix, and it's not an uncommon injury, is going to be a stab wound to one part of the heart or another. And really the most common thing that we're dealing with that's anything out of the ordinary is if there's a vessel that's been cut, one of the coronaries on the way in, and you've got to kind of situate your sutures around that. Um, but usually, for the most part, they're very straightforward injuries to close. We'll close them with a proline relatively thick, like a 2-0, and um, we want to have a nice tapered needle that's as large as possible so that uh, you just want to make the, the job as simple as possible. Um, the only other thing, I think, is if it's a posterior injury, you know, 
making sure that you get everything ready so that you can attack that posterior injury without having the heart arrest is uh, is key. And just being aware that that's what's going to happen. Um, whether you gently lift it up and so, or you slowly stack things up to let the heart accommodate, um, just being cognizant that, uh, that the posterior injuries are eight to not be missed and you need to look for them. And to number two, make sure that uh, you take your time when you approach it so that uh, you do as good a job on the backside as you do on the front side. Now with gunshot wounds specifically, although they're rare, you're right. I think the gunshot wound is a far more destructive injury. And not only is it the actual hole itself, but there's usually devitalized tissue that needs to be debrided around the, the, the site of the hole itself, which is very difficult often. And unless it's an apical or a skiving injury, there's often two that you have to deal with. So I think there's a couple principles that are important. So first of all, when the patient, if the patient arrests, like the patient that you're talking about, trying to whip something in, in the emergency department, if you have to do it, great. But if you can, like you said, stick your finger on it, get the heart back and the heart's moving and you can either occlude it with your finger and hold it there or use a balloon like a Foley to keep that occluded, it is far better to deal with it in the operating room. So I think that would be my first statement when it comes to gunshot wounds. Number two, I would, once up in the operating room, again, really communicate in these situations with anesthesia to make sure that you're doing things in concert with the resuscitations. You don't over-resuscitate this patient because there's this tendency, of course, to, um, you know, the patient's just arrested and they have a hole in the heart. Maybe they have two holes from this gunshot wound. Let's just dump all this fluid and blood product into the patient. And the heart, as you know, very quickly um, loses its ability to accommodate. And now you're dealing with this big, boggy heart. So, yeah. So it's important to um, be in good, close communication with what you're losing and what the patient needs. And then number three, I think... If you've done the thoracotomy because they're arrested versus doing the median sternotomy because they haven't yet arrested, either way, you really want to make sure that you've got things as open as possible. And if you had to go in through a thoracotomy to access that gunshot wound and you really have a suboptimal view and the patient's alive and this might be a savable patient and you need to come across the sternum in order to get good access to the heart, well, then that's what you got to do. So I would say... As the next thing, before making any definitive moves on the heart in the operating room, really make sure that you've optimized your exposure, especially if you had to get through the left thoracotomy to kind of get them alive and get the heart sparked up. Once you're in the operating room, optimize everything. And if you have to do the clamshell, just go ahead and do the clamshell. Once all of that is ready to go, then I would say you've got to look at the heart and you really have to decide where are the holes, um, are the coronaries injured, is there a posterior hole and an anterior hole, is it a skive, what really needs to be fixed and closed, and then number two, what needs to be uh, debrided and devitalized. And so those are the two decisions that you have to make intraoperatively. And this is the one situation, you know, for the the vast majority of injuries to the heart that survive and make it alive to the operating room, they're all stab wounds and we don't need to use pledgets as long as you're careful. And uh, again, you're using a good suture and you're taking your time with a good needle. But with gunshot wounds, often because you've got this tissue that's kind of raggedy and you may have had to debride away a little bit of stuff in order to clean it all up, in gunshot wounds, with these patients, you may need to use pledgets in order to be able to get everything kind of reopposed. 
I think the same principles that we adhere to for stab wounds, which is really at that initial operation just to deal with the outside of the heart and to close it so that no more blood is leaking outwards, still holds for gunshot wounds. And so you're not trying to detect whether there's a, you know, VSD or there's like a valvular. If the patient's alive, your goal at that index operation is simply to seal up the outside of the heart, debride off any dead tissue that's there, and with gunshot wounds to specifically maybe use pledgets if required to bring it together. But that really is the goal. So I think those are the different principles that I would think about with a gunshot wound and how they're different from your approach to a stab wound to the heart. Really great points. And I think our buddy Scott Weingart would agree, clamshell thoracotomy, have a low threshold to perform that. And like you emphasized, I think when patients do go into cardiac arrest in the setting of cardiac tamponade or a devastating cardiac injury, the access through that left anterolateral resuscitative thoracotomy is really inadequate. So clamshelling these patients to get that panoramic view of the mediastinum in all chambers of the heart are critical. Now, when it comes to sewing on, let's say, the back of the heart or in an area where, you know, near the atriocaval junction, have you ever utilized pharmacologic agents? And specifically, I'm thinking of adenosine to kind of just give that heart a momentary pause so that you can get to those difficult to access locations? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, The answer is no. I think it's something that's there as an option, but uh, I have not had to resort to that. I do think in those tough spots, it really is a two-person job. So you need to have an operator that's going to sew. They need to be ready to roll. They've got to have all their equipment, the sutures, everything ready, and they need to be calm. And then just as important is the setup person. And you know, there's a lot of things that we do as trauma surgeons where that setup person is important. But I would say for a technically challenging part of the heart, especially on the backside, for example, having that setup person to get everything organized and ready is the key um, person. So the, the answer to your question is no, but I think that it's something that's an option. More important than that, I think for me is, you know, either me being the setup person or, you know, proctoring a fellow to be that setup person to learn how to do that while the resident actually places a stitch and to make it as easy as possible technically for the person placing the stitch to do that accurately is the key. So that that's that's kind of my approach to it. And I have not had to pharmacologically uh, stop the heart. So I've done it once or twice before, never really found that it helped a heck of a lot. And I do want to emphasize, you mentioned the 2.0 proline on an MH or SH needle. The other thing I would add to that is make sure it's double armed if you've got it. Uh, specifically when you have patients who have like a coronary artery injury or like a laceration to the heart near coronary, we're classically taught to do a horizontal mattress and instead of having to backhand that, make it really awkward, just have a double arm needle and then you got two forward passes of your hand and you're done. Yeah, all of our residents, uh, I'm sure it's the same at Harbor, have uh, a couple of those stuck in their pocket on uh, call. So they're all ready to roll with that. Yeah, we had a recent case of a GSW to the RV and uh, was a pretty significant injury. We were able to get a Satinsky clamp on it uh, because it was near the apex, and that allowed us to get the patient up to the OR, at which point we were able to oversew it. And there have been situations where we've actually even been able to use, across the appendage, simple linear staplers to get hemorrhage control as well. 
So we've got our patient, whether it's a stab wound or a gunshot wound. And like you you pointed out, the gunshot wound victims, especially with these cardiac injuries, there's so much blast injury and, and concomitant tissue damage that most of these patients aren't going to make it out of the ER. But let's say we've got the patient with that classic RV stab wound. We've put our nice horizontal mattress suture in it or our chief resident has. What do you do at that point? Is there a need for a drain? If so, where do you place it? And then do you close or leave the pericardial sac open? Yeah, those, those are really good questions. So um, here's my practice. So the first question that I would ask is, as you set up the closure, is have you had to or do you need to, based on your chest X-ray, enter the pleura on either side? And uh, I would always take the time to ask the question. Do we need to enter the left side? Do we need to enter the right side? Do we need to suck out any blood? And do we need to drain those um, from the center using an angled chest tube? So that'd be question number one. Question number two is, do we leave a mediastinal tube? And I always do. You know, we used to, in general here at LA County, leave these relatively small bore chest tubes, but I think almost all of us have moved over to leaving a blight in the mediastinal area as the med tube, and, and that seems to work very well for our patients. Um, we try really hard to make sure that we're as hemostatic as possible that in that area, including the, you know, in these cases, we don't really pay attention to the sternal edges as we enter, but on the way out, we really want to make sure that uh, everything, including the bone, is as dry as possible, and maybe that's why we um, can use these smaller mediastinal tubes on the way out. And as far as the pericardium, I think that's a really good question. You know, our cardiac surgeons are very good friends here at, uh, <laughs> at uh, USC, so you know, when these young 20 or 30 year olds are coming back for, uh, although by, you know, in this era, they're going to come back for some sort of endovascular approach to their valve or to their bypass. But for now, when they come back for that reduced sternotomy, because they've been stabbed again, or because they need a bypass or whatever in the future, it's kind of nice whenever possible to be able to at least close part of that pericardium, the part that's going to be abutting the sternum. Uh, if you can. Now, the reality is I talked a great game about talking anesthesia and making sure that we don't over resuscitate. But the reality is, oftentimes, uh, despite all of our efforts, these patients, you know, especially if they arrested at some point, they get a lot of resuscitation. And the frank reality is, getting that pericardium closed can be very difficult. So I would answer your question by saying that whenever possible, if you can at least achieve a partial closure over the part that's going to butt the sternum, I think it's totally worthwhile doing. We never close it all the way, uh, just in case our hemostasis wasn't perfect, but we do try to close as much as we can. It's not always successful. In fact, I would say that in many cases, it's not successful. But, you know, I, I think it's a consideration. And whenever possible, we should try to get some intervening tissue between uh, the sternum and, and the pericardium. Yeah, I agree with that. And that's certainly my practice as well. Now, briefly, you touched upon car cardiac surgery. And I think in centers or in countries, for example, our native country of Canada, where maybe they're not seeing a lot of cardiac stab wounds, there seems to be this impression that this is an injury for the cardiac surgeons to deal with. And we know that not to be true. But are there situations or particular injuries or areas of the heart where you think that maybe we should be calling our cardiac surgeons or maybe the patient might need to go onto ECMO, for example? I think it's very practice dependent. And I think there's a couple of principles that need to be brought into consideration. The first is that this is a time sensitive injury. So patient rolls into the emergency department, they're lying in your resuscitation bay, they've got that stab wound, you put the ultrasound probe down and there's fluid there. 
Vital signs look good. Maybe they're a little bit tachycardic because they've just been stabbed or shot. But it's not going to last in that situation for very long. So I think the first thing that, uh, especially with the trainees that are listening to this to remember is you want to make sure that you move on this very quickly. And the moment you register a positive fast, they need to be starting that move to the operating room. So then the second thing that comes into play is what sort of cardiac surgery support do you have? And the reality is, and places like where you work and where I work here, we don't have access at three o'clock in the morning to a cardiac surgeon. Um, so I think that that would be the second important thing, because again, it is a very time sensitive um, operation or injury. And then I think number three is if you look at the technical goals of this operation at that index case, it really is not challenging. Of all the things that we do, this is probably one of the most easiest and sad, most satisfying operations that we do because patients do so well. So I think if we all remember that we've got to act on it quickly, you're the one that's there at the bedside and it's not a technically challenging injury. And really the goal of this operation is to close the outside of the heart. The reality is in most practices, the best person to deal with this and frankly, the person that deals with most is going to be the trauma surgeon that's in the hospital. Now, I will say that we do again, because they're our good friends, um, work with our cardiac surgeons in the post-operative phase of care. I think all of these patients that come in, um, whether it's a stab wound or in those relatively rare gunshot wounds, they can have a valvular injury or they can have a septal defect. There can be a grading across the heart. There can be the development of um, an aneurysm or all these sorts of things. So I think that it's mandatory in patients that you get them through that initial index operation and uh, they're alive and it's, you know, day two or three and they're looking really awesome. We will always get an ultrasound uh, to look for any structural um, defects that are residing within the heart that you just fixed. And if there is, we will always involve our cardiac surgeons who can really help us decipher exactly what the anatomical um, abnormality is. Um, and what sort of physiologic impact that anatomic abnormality is having and whether we need to address it now or we can send them home and follow up with them. But either way, these are very complicated um, decisions. And, you know, we have a whole group of surgeons who are experts at this. So I would 100% defer and work with them closely on uh, those. But I, I think it's mandatory to get uh, post-operative ultrasound. You don't want to do it too quickly up front. Um, so we usually wait till day two or three when things have had a chance to settle, the edema's gone down, and uh, we're looking for structural defects, uh, clot burden, um, things like that. Um, things that, you know, the reality is the vast majority of these, if we do find them, are not going to require surgical management, but it's super important that we know about them before they go home. Absolutely valid points. And I think the idea of getting a post-operative routine echo is a, is an important strategy. So I know you're super busy. You've got interviews going on. It's the middle of the week. Before we end the podcast, you know, May is Stop the Bleed month. And obviously, you've had a large role to play with regards to Stop the Bleed education nationally and internationally. Maybe a few words on new updates and what's happening with regards to the Stop the Bleed STB program. 
I I think that it is absolutely critical, especially since it is Stop the Bleed Month. And and I didn't know this, but you told me just as we were starting that uh, Stop the Bleed Day is coming up. And hopefully we get this all um, teed up for that day. But yes, I think the the new things that the Education Committee for Stop the Bleed out of the uh, Committee on Trauma has put forward over the last, I don't know, six months we've been working on it probably. Yeah, yeah about is the virtual approach to getting this teaching done. And so um, there are now a couple of options, but what's new is that we have one virtual platform that's already out, which essentially is a video and slide-based run-through of the didactic portion of the course, which is then followed by a virtual or if appropriate, depending on your, you know, local um, rules um, in person, go at teaching all of the um, skills and having the tourniquet practice done. Now, um, you actually, thank you very much, put together an awesome video that is designed to teach our teachers and all of our Stop the Bleed instructors how best to run this virtual course. So I think for everyone that's listening out there, it's important to know that we do have a a video-based virtual didactic course. All of the instructors that are out there can watch uh, Dennis's uh, primer to how to do a virtual skills hands-on, again, through the computer. And if you put those two things together, you really have a complete virtual package for teaching this program. Now, it's going to be difficult to do a class of 100 people like we used to be able to do. The numbers are going to be much smaller, but I think it's a very effective way of getting the principles across and the practical aspects of the course across as well. The one other thing that we're literally working on um, this week, and we've been working on for weeks now, is a animated version of the virtual didactic part as well. And um, we're in our third or fourth iteration of changes to it. And, uh, you know, I I mean, you've seen it, Dennis. I think it looks absolutely fantastic. We've uh, partnered with UC Santa Barbara, and there is a group of students there that have really done an absolutely phenomenal job of uh, putting this uh, animated program together. It's it's just, I think it's a lot of fun to do the course. It's very interactive. And uh, I think it's going to be the way of the future to the point where we may simply use that even when we're fully back to doing in-person courses. You can log on, do this um, didactic part, and then either do an instructor-based virtual skills portion or you can do it in person. So there's going to be a lot of different options for how you can get this teaching out there. And if you're a student, how you can learn uh, the Stop the Bleed. But I, I think the important thing is that the the college really hasn't sat back through this COVID and the restrictions. They've really taken a very proactive stance and said, look, we really, this is really important core knowledge. How can we best safely get this out to the public? And I, I think they've done an outstanding job all around. I completely agree. I think the efforts and the work of the education committee of the ACSCOT has done a fantastic job, really kind of moving to more of a virtual slash hybrid course. And I also agree with you. I think that the principles and the lessons to be learned, particularly among non-healthcare professionals, 
can be life-saving. And we've seen an increase in the utilization of tourniquets in patients with penetrating and blunt extremity vascular injuries. And proper application saves lives. So please do check out the stopbleed.org website. There's a lot of resources on there. And if you're questioning the potential differences between a virtual versus in-person course, there are a couple of RCTs actually going on right now to answer that exact question. Well, once again, thank you so much for joining us on Trauma ICU Rounds, and thanks to this week's guest professor, Dr. Kenji Anaba, the Chief of Trauma Surgery at LACUSC. If you like what you're hearing, make sure you let us know and share it with the world. You can leave us a kind comment at iTunes or wherever you normally download your podcasts. If you haven't taken a Stop the Bleed course or you're an instructor and looking to roll out the course virtually, please do visit stopthebleed.org. Until next time, please keep reading, stay safe, take care of yourselves and one another.